pick up this morning where we left off a few weeks ago at the 36th verse of Luke chapter 7. I invite you to turn your attention there with me. Luke 7 verse 36. We'll be reading through the end of the chapter. Now, last time we were rocked back on our heels a bit to hear no one less than John the Baptist Uh, coming to some doubts about Jesus, about whether he was the Messiah or if they should look for someone else. Well, Jesus tenderly put those doubts to rest, you remember. And uh, in the parallel account of this uh, material in Luke's, uh, rather in Matthew's gospel, following the material we considered last time in Luke's gospel, there comes from Jesus this beautiful and engaging invitation. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's long been wondered whether the woman about whom we're going to read in a moment uh, was there to hear those words from Jesus, and whether it was at that moment that the light flooded all of the darkness out of her Heart, if her guilt and her hopelessness were at that time lifted from her shoulders, as it clearly has been uh, by the time the events we're going to read uh, took place in Simon the Pharisee's house. Well, it's impossible for us to know for sure, but at any rate, it is apparent from what we're about to read that somewhere along the line, this woman had been previously um, had had a previous encounter with Jesus, and that her sins had been forgiven. It's also very apparent that she knew how to respond to that uh, blessing, among the highest of God's blessings, indeed, of having our sins forgiven, of a heart cleansed by the grace of God, and some of receiving new life. The question for you this morning is this: Do you? know how to respond to such grace as has been lavished upon you. What we're going to read this morning is is the fruit of forgiveness, the response of a grateful heart for the love and forgiveness that have encountered it and indeed captured it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we go to your word, we We uh, recognize how needful we are of you. Indeed, this entire hour has been the expression of our need of of you. But more than that has been the expression of uh, God in uh, helping, in forgiving, in cleansing, in empowering, in filling us with his spirit. And so we pray for you to do all of these things as now we... Listen to your voice in the reading and preaching of your word. Speak, we pray, for your servants are listening. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 7, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him, and of course it's Jesus, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold... A woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table at the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, 
And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, uh, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I wonder why Simon the Pharisee, not to be confused, by the way, with Simon Peter, nor with Simon the Zealot, nor with Simon the father of Judas Iscariot, nor Simon of Cyrene, nor Simon the Tanner, nor Simon the Leper. I say, I wonder why Simon the Pharisee invited Jesus into his house in the first place. It's obvious he doesn't love Jesus. You know, in the passage itself, we can detect that though he did invite Jesus, he had invited him. He certainly offered him none of the customary expressions of hospitality. No water for his feet, no formal greeting, not even some plain olive oil for his head. Maybe he was curious. Maybe he just wondered about Jesus. Maybe he was trying like the Pharisees so often did, uh, often attempted to put Jesus to the test. Maybe he was shooting for some extra merit, you know, for having a rabbi in his home. We don't know for sure. We do know that Jesus was not his only guest. He took his place, Jesus did, at the table, probably among uh, other Pharisees and others uh, too, perhaps. Jesus didn't mind, uh, mind you. He enjoyed a good meal and he was willing to eat with anyone. They were probably reclined at this banquet around a, a U-shaped table, 
leaning on their left arms, their right hands free then to handle their food, their feet facing outward behind them, away from the table. But then appears behind Jesus now, a a person who was not an invited guest. Indeed, she was an unwelcome person, a persona known grata as far as Simon was concerned, a woman, a woman of ill repute, a sinner. Apparently, in the ancient Near East, a banquet such as this one was more open to the public than the sort of um, you know, dinners we have in our private uh, homes today. People were able to saunter into the house or into the courtyard to watch and maybe even you know, engage in the conversation. And that could certainly be the explanation for her ready access um, this day to the goings-on at uh, Simon's house. Uh, Simon the Pharisee certainly would not have invited her. It is really remarkable to see her there and even more to see what she does, which point Dr. Luke makes eloquently there at the beginning of verse 37 with, Behold, (laughs) he's saying, Look at this, behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner when she learned that that, uh, he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar, flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. A few moments ago, I called her a woman of ill repute. I know what that title implies, uh, though I cannot say for certain that she had indeed been a prostitute. Uh, some commentators speak as though it's a foregone conclusion. Um, it is entirely possible even likely. I'm just not as confident as others, but it really hardly matters. A sinner is a sinner, uh, whether she's a prostitute or a gossip. She might as well have been a prostitute this day, though, as far as the pharisaical mind is concerned, when she does the unthinkable right there in an act of total self-abandonment, even against the social mores of her day, she lets down her hair in public. And then wipes Jesus' feet with it. And the only thing worse about this scenario is that Jesus lets her do it. Simon, looking down the end of his nose at Jesus, thinks to himself, this for you um, English students, a contrary to fact condition, uh, for you uh, budding Greek scholars, a second class condition, I say he thinks to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who was touching him, for she is a sinner. Simon has convinced himself, you see, that Jesus is no prophet. This is the, the seals his verdict, you know. He can't be a prophet, else he'd know who this was and he wouldn't let this happen. He wouldn't have let an unclean woman touch him, and especially not in this way. He would have known what was in her heart, what kind of person she is, and so on. So that just makes it all the more ironic, doesn't it? I mean, just amusingly, wonderfully ironic. That Jesus, who is a true prophet, knows what Simon is thinking. No Simon's very thoughts. Simon's thoughts about his not being a prophet. 
And with that, Luke has set up so skillfully and wonderfully a great contrast. And it is in the contrast that we learn the lessons, at least some of the lessons, this passage is full of them, that the text holds for us. On the one hand, we have Simon the Pharisee. On the other, this, this woman. Now, there are a lot of ways that they stand in contrast to one another. Obviously, Simon's a man and the woman's a woman. Simon is presumably a man of means and of some wealth. She is probably not, though somehow she's come into possession of this very expensive ointment and a fancy translucent stone alabaster jar that she extravagantly lavishes on Jesus' feet. Simon is a man of sterling reputation. Her reputation is shot from one end of town to the other. He is of social standing. She is an outcast. He's a host. She's not even an invited guest. He's sitting in judgment over Jesus, and she's at Jesus' feet. There's another way that they stand in stark contrast to one another, the most important way. I'll get back to that in just a moment. For now, freeze the frame right there. Take a close look at these two. He is stewing. He is offended. His self-righteous pomposity and judgment pouring out from him. And she bent over the water's of her heart now falling on Jesus' feet as she wipes them with her own hair and kisses while anointing with what probably amounted to two years' wages worth of ointment. Dr. Luke wants you to look carefully at them. Once again, he's already uh, done what he's, he's done in the past. He's set up for us this, this contrast, we'll see him do it again. He'll take different parties and their responses to Jesus and, and set them before us and then press us to choose how we will respond to him. On the one hand, Simon the Pharisee is full of scornful contempt for Jesus. He's already been, been downright rude to him, ignoring him, withholding from him even the common courtesies of hospitality. He's quick to condemn Jesus as a farce even as he is ever ready to condemn everyone around him for being sinners. Everyone else in the Pharisee's mind is of a different class than he or she. Not only does he call the woman a sinner, in his mind he says, what sort of woman? Touching, he says to himself. And we have no doubt from the vocabulary of the text that he means to imply sexual overtones. As for himself, Simon's religion was about his own goodness. God was for him because he was good. He thought of himself, not like people like this woman whose lives are a disaster. Simon's religion was about keeping away from known sinners, and, and he was convinced that doing so put him on the high moral ground before God. What it made him, as a matter of fact, was graceless and loveless. As one commentator puts it, he had an arctic heart, permafrost of the soul. She, on the other hand, whose name we're not even given, is full of love 
as filled with scorn as the Pharisee is, so she is overflowing with affection. As for her religious and moral and social standing, her eyes have nowhere to turn but up. She looked at Jesus, and what she saw was not a farce, but a friend. A friend of sinners. He had been called a name the Pharisees used pejoratively, but which was music to her ears. A friend of sinners. She adored him with holy adoration. She was, uh, she was the object of his affection too. He was the lover of her soul. So full of love for Jesus that she forgets herself and lets down her hair. An offense for which the Talmud, by the way, allowed a man to divorce his wife if she did it. Uh, let down her hair before another man. And with pure, not erotic, but pure passion. Let that hair of hers fall on his feet. She kisses his feet. And the verb here, the tense of the verb indicates that she kept kissing and kissing and kissing and kissing his feet. The ointment was probably the most, uh, maybe the only, prized and precious possession she owned. But like the the widow with her mites, remember her? It was not too much. In fact, it was not enough. She was glad to give it. She poured it on his feet. It was the fragrance, in fact, of her love that wafted through and filled the place. Usually ointment would be used for the head, but in humility she, like a slave, cares for his feet. Jesus draws the greatest now, the the deepest contrast between the two of them, the one that lay behind all that could be seen that day with the physical eye at that moment in time. And this is the most important contrast, the one I said that I'd get back to. It is the spiritual contrast that Jesus captures in a parable, spoken to Simon beginning in verse 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii. The other, 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Now, Simon's, uh, (laughs) he knows he has to answer, but he hitches a little bit. He's probably seen Jesus best, his Pharisee uh, opponents in debate several times by now. And so he answers hesitatingly, verse 43, uh, the one... I suppose, uh, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, Jesus said, you've judged rightly. And in verse 47, Jesus sets the hook. Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Here's the difference that lies behind these two responses to Jesus. This is the difference, the grace of forgiveness. The grace of the forgiveness of sin. Now, please don't make the mistake of thinking that what Jesus means here 
is that she's forgiven because of her love for Jesus. In the history of the Christian church, some have found here a works salvation in Jesus' assertion that her many sins are forgiven for she loved much, as though her sins are forgiven because she loves much. What Jesus means, what he's saying, is that her love is the evidence of her forgiveness. She loves not to be forgiven. She loves because she has been forgiven. What we're witnessing, what Jesus is pointing out, is the fruit of forgiveness. The evidence of forgiveness. Forgiveness she's already experienced earlier, out of which this extravagant expression of love now rises. And rises with some proportionality. The fact that she loves much, in other words, means that she's been forgiven much. And that she knows it full well. And that on the other hand, in contrast that Jesus draws, those who are forgiven little love little. Forgiveness is the difference. And makes all the difference. It's the great watershed that divides all of humanity between the forgiven and the unforgiven. On those two opposite sides that exist almost anywhere you go in our modern world, there are those who think themselves to have no need of forgiveness and those who know themselves to be unable to live without it. And behind those convictions are those who think themselves to be pretty good people overall, who, like Elder Thomas prayed, you know, uh, think themselves not so sinful when they compare themselves to other people. Pretty good people overall, like Simon the Pharisee thought himself to be. And on the other side of that divide, those who, like the Apostle Paul, apply to themselves his self-imposed Sobriquet, find in it a perfect description of themselves, chief of sinners. While George Whitfield was preaching in 18th century England, the Duchess of Buckingham was among those invited to his meetings. She sat through Whitfield's evangelistic address with her nose high in the air. And then she wrote to a friend, the Countess of Huntingdon, It is monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl the earth. This is highly offensive and insulting, and I cannot but wonder that your ladyship should relish any sentiments so much at variance with high-ranking And good breeding. Well, not very difficult to tell on which side of the watershed the Duchess lived. No washing Jesus' feet for her. A graceless heart, a heart that is foreign to the Spirit of God, is also a proud heart, is a heart offended by the very suggestion that it is sinful and in desperate need above all else for the forgiveness of God 
through Christ Jesus. Centuries before the Duchess was born, a man known to us now by the name St. Francis of Assisi was deeply tempted to think too highly of himself, to forget that he was a sinner, and uh, because he was so decked with worldly approval, having gained fame and celebrity. And when it became commonplace for people to fawn over him and to pay compliments to him and to praise him, he would appoint one of his friars to do the opposite. You know, as compliments and praises were going in one ear, this friar's job was to come up behind him and whisper in his other, reminding him that he was boorish and mercenary and unskilled and useless. And he would reply, May the Lord bless you, my son, for it is you that speak the very truth and what the son of Peter Bernadin should hear. Francis once said of himself that there is nowhere a more wretched and miserable sinner than I. Now that sounds outrageous. Ridiculous to the world's ears, what Francis thought of himself. But that's because the world is on the opposite side, you see, of the great divide. Self-righteousness is the default stance of an unforgiven, fallen, sinful heart. Simon well represented that side, didn't he? When he looked down his nose at both this woman and at Jesus. But the woman who loved much, she had been forgiven much. And so now the question is, for you, where do you find yourself in this history, in this story? Do you know yourself to be a sinner, a lawbreaker, a rebel to the core against God, a treasonous traitor against your maker? Do you know the weight and the horror of your sin? Does it disgust you that you ever could have spat in the face of your Lord, of your maker, and that more than breath itself, you need his forgiveness. If the answer to those questions is yes, then you praise God that it is so. For the person who's been forgiven much, loves much. And the more he is forgiven, the more she asks God to remove this sin and remove its guilt from her, the more she loves. But if you are of a mind this morning to think little of your sins, yeah, sure, I'm not perfect. You've all heard this, haven't you? You've talked to somebody about the gospel. You've explained the most important thing that they need to understand before they can receive the gospel, that they're sinners. You've heard them say this, do you? a bad person sometimes, most of all, and overall, especially in comparison to others, I'm a pretty good person. If that's what you think of yourself, 
then woe to you. And may God have mercy upon you. May God show you the blackness, the putrid nature of your sin. Because until you come to terms with your need for Christ, until you have your sins forgiven, which are many, until, in other words, you're forgiven much, you can't love much. You see how Jesus turned to the woman in verse 48 and says, your sins are forgiven? And why does he do that? She knew her sins were forgiven. That's why she was there. Newsflash, your sins are forgiven. That's why she was there. She'd already learned that. But he says it again. And he says it again and again and again and again. said it this morning to us in the course of this worship. To those who love him, who trust him, who have fled to him for forgiveness. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. In an untold number of ways in the Bible, he says it to us. Week after week, he says it to us in this house. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Why? Well, it could be because we have such a hard time believing it. It really is almost too good to be true. Almost more than we can take in. But it could also be this, that those who are forgiven much, love much, those who know forgiveness best, love best. And, you know, he loves your love. He loves your love. He loves your extravagant love. Jesus didn't flinch. He didn't push the alabaster jar away. He loved to receive it. He was satisfied to have her empty the entire jar to its last drop on his feet. Not because he's some sort of megalomaniac. He doesn't suffer any delusions of lordship. He is Lord. And we were made to love him. We find our greatest happiness and joy and purest peace in loving him. And why shouldn't we? He's poured out his love to the last drop for us and forgiven our sins once for all and then over and over and over and over again. Love him. Love him, brothers and sisters. Love him with extravagance. No, you, you can't phys- kiss his physical feet. I know that. You can't pour ointment over his toes. But you can sing to him with all of your heart. You can give him your gifts with a loving and grateful heart. Your offerings. You can pray to him. You can tell him. You can tell him all day long. How much you love him. How much he means to you. You can still cry, by the way, tears of joy at thoughts of his friendship with you as the friend of sinners. You can 
Declare his forgiveness to other sinners who need so desperately what you already have. Maybe even those whom no one else is willing to reach. In some, you can give him everything, not just tears and perfume, but all of yourself. Heart, soul, mind, body, all of it poured out in love at Jesus' feet. Amen.